Shirley J. didn't realize she was gay until she first stepped foot in a gay bar. This was the early 1970s, Chicago, and Shirley was 30 years old. What hit me is the first gay bar was like, whoa. There, you know, it was like made me feel like, oh, there are people here that feel the way I was thinking, okay? From there, Shirley became a huge part of LGBT nightlife in Chicago. What appealed to me was that you can uh, be free, you know. You're with your own kind, so to speak. She found a big group of queer friends, people she met at bars, through their partners, and their partners' partners. And so me and, uh, again, some of the friends that I met along the way, gay guys and women, we kind of formed a group and we opened up this after-hours club called The Warehouse. The idea was to find a space where they could throw queer dance parties every weekend. And since it would just be music and dancing, no bar, they could stay open well past when other clubs had to close. Shirley and her friends were inspired by similar clubs they had been to in New York. We would frequent New York at least once a month and uh, just to go party. And lost-out parties were going on that would start midnight and last to like 7 in the morning. And we were just discussing, you know, we're sitting around just, you know, chatting like, man, you're chatting now, okay? Came up with the ideas, why don't we do this, you know, in Chicago, bring it to Chicago. And uh, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they started throwing these parties once a week, every Saturday in the same space, a loft they had rented downtown. And uh, we turned it into like a club, you know. It was just beautiful with the disco ball and uh, balloons, just everything. It was our clubhouse, so to speak. Like a clubhouse, the warehouse was made up of a bunch of different rooms. You come into this warehouse and, you know, this is an industrial district. And then you open up the doors and then you come in and we had everything set up. You couldn't really see the dance floor because we had like curtains to uh, block it off. We had even had a coat check. We had rooms where you could sit back and lay back like a lounge area, watch TV. And then... If you wanted to chat with somebody, you had, you know, just a room where you could sit and not, you know, be a part of the music. And the most important room at the warehouse was the dance floor. And once you would come through and open up, the curtains here is this big old dance floor, people dancing and lights going on and off. It was beautiful. And in the DJ booth, history was being made. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Frankie Knuckles. I hadn't. But I looked him up. Frankie Knuckles is a DJ, often called the godfather of house music. A type of electronic dance music made popular by Knuckles. It was a new genre of music after disco, which was house. Knuckles was living in Chicago at the time, and he was friends with one of the other creators of the warehouse. So that's where he would DJ and experiment with what we now know of as house music. It's called house because when we open up the warehouse, people will say, are you going to the house tonight? So when you hear the term house music, that's actually referring to the warehouse. People started calling it house music, as in the kind of music they played at the house. Here's a clip from Knuckles' 2014 lecture at Red Bull Music Academy. I was in a car with a friend of mine going to his house out on the south side, and we were at a stoplight, and there was a tavern on the corner. 
that had a sign in the window that said, we play house music. That was the first time I heard it. Well, I saw it, and I asked him what it was. And he says, that music you play down there at that club? <laughs> I was like, excuse me? <laughs> He's like, that's house music. And I just said, oh, I didn't realize it had a name. And so he was like, well, it's the house. It's what everybody calls it. He was like, it's everybody's nickname for the place. And I just thought, oh. Eventually, the genre became really popularized and mainstream. But back then, Shirley and her friends didn't let just anyone into the warehouse. You had to be a member. So you had to come to a party three times in a row to become a member. So we would get to know you. Once you did that, you can just sign up as a member. And we had a guest list. So we would keep track of all the members. So every time we open up the doors, we would check off that person when they come in. And if they brought a guest, we would allow them to bring a guest or two. That's how non-members were able to get in three times in a row, as guests of a current member. They wanted to make sure everyone inside was either queer or accepting of queerness. Even though it was, uh, you know, men and women, boys and girls, we still had to worry, you know. And as a Black queer woman, Shirley had to be even more careful. While queer spaces offered a much-needed safe haven, they were by no means free of racism. For Black gay women or lesbian women, it was harder to get in as a group to some of the uh, bars that were open. She's talking about the other Chicago gay bars and clubs. Shirley stopped running the warehouse around 1980. But at some of those other bars, Shirley and her friends would have to break up into groups of two and go in separately. If it was more than two of you and you were Black, they would like, uh, they wouldn't let you in, you know. So it was a few of them like that. That's the way it was back then. Today, Shirley is a regular at Nobody's Darling, a women-centric cocktail bar in Chicago. It's women-owned, queer-owned, and Black-owned. That's why I said it's like a cheers bar to me, because, you know, everybody knows my name, it seems like, and even some of the patrons, now they know me, you know, so I'm meeting a lot of people, and it's just fun. And it's, you know, it's a relaxed atmosphere. And they treat you real well. They're, you know, very courteous, you know, very accommodating. And that's what we needed. We needed something like that. Someplace where you could just relax. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S., my name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number six, Nobody's Darling. Be nobody's darling. Be an outcast. Take the contradictions of your life and wrap around you like a shawl. Chicago's women-centric cocktail bar was named after an Alice Walker poem. It's called Be Nobody's Darling. Angela Barnes came up with the name. She's one of the co-owners of Nobody's Darling. Angela sent it to me and I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is Renata Riddle speaking now, the other co-owner. She sent me the poem, the name, and I instantly was like, oh yeah, this is it. We, we, this, this is golden right here. You know, I'm from the South, so my mom always calls me darling. The poem itself, uh, you know, being an outcast, 
all those things just speak to to who we are and you know what we wanted to bring to the bar in the space. Hi, we're good. The space itself is chic and minimalist. The entire text of the Alice Walker poem is scrawled on a big chalkboard there. That's on your left when you walk into Nobody's Darling. To your right is the bar, painted a rust red. And behind that, a wall of mirrored panels in a larger-than-life painting of the bar's logo. The silhouette of a woman's face with a martini glass in front. The evening we were in town, Angela and Renata held court at a high-top table at the front corner of the bar. You get the sense that's where they always hang out, drinking and chatting with friends and patrons. They both have HBIC vibes about them. If you're not sure what that stands for, look it up. But they look like the kind of people you want to get to know. Angela was the one who greeted us and showed us around earlier in the day. We have our outstanding bartender over there. Great. Yeah. Angela's been attracted to bars since she was a little girl. Not because of the alcohol. She was drinking mocktails but more the mixology and hospitality of it all. My earliest sort of um, bar experience, which was kind of cute, we went to school on the near north side of Chicago. And um, oddly, at that time, we had um, an open campus. And so at lunchtime, you know, we could go anywhere and we would stop by uh, my friend's dad's bar so he could give her lunch money. And sometimes what he would do is uh, make us these kitty cocktails. Of course, we didn't know they were kitty cocktails at the time that had at least, you know, I would say 20 maraschino cherries and Sprite. Um, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. Those kitty cocktails really stuck with Angela. In the back of her mind, she kind of always wanted to bartend. As I grew up, you know, I was kind of very much into making drinks for friends and, and, and different things like that. And I thought, oh, my God, I can totally bartend. Um, turns out it's harder than I thought. So that's that's been a lesson. Her childhood friend, whose dad was the bar owner, ended up going into the industry as well. And Angela thought that would be her chance. And I kept asking her if I could bartend and she kept telling me no. And so, you know, I sort of secretly harbored this desire to, you know, figure out how I could, um, you know, bartend. Somebody wouldn't say no to me. Angela was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Growing up, she remembers hearing about the one gay bar in her neighborhood, Jeffrey Pub. This was one of those places where, um, you know, you had to go to the door and ring the doorbell and they kind of figure out if you're a threat. Right. You know, and and then let you in. Um, And while no one, you know, as I was growing up, made any uh, derogatory um, comments, you know, there was always that comment of, oh, and, you know, Jeffrey Pop. Right. You know, just kind of like, you know, that it's different. Right. It's a different kind of bar, but you're not really quite sure. What do you mean by that? But Angela didn't go to any of these bars or even come out as gay until after college. She got her undergrad degree from Wellesley and then went on to law school at Columbia. So in addition to owning a bar, Angela is also a corporate lawyer. Right now I work for a small nonprofit. Um, It's actually a civic, more of a civic organization. Um, It's called City Tech Collaborative. It seemed Angela's career path was taking her farther and farther away from her childhood dream of bartending. That is, until she met Renata Riddle, the other co-owner of Nobody's Darling. 
They met through the center on Halstead, Chicago's LGBT community center. Here's Renata. I led their women's action committee there. And so I would create events for Center on Halstead. So as head of the committee, Renata reached out to Angela to try and get her involved. It was very important uh, for the Center on Halstead at the time to um, try to make sure that they were reaching out to queer women um, and, you know, making sure that basically queer women understood, you know, here here's what the center is and what it does. Um, and, you know, really the philosophy of that committee was we do that through social events and community. Outside of the community center, Angela and Renata realized they had two crucial things in common. Oh, and then we figured out we both like to golf and drink, so. So the pair took to the course. That's how they became good friends and eventually business partners. I think Renata hadn't golfed in a while. And, you know, then do you remember I got her out on the course? And then it, it was nice because when you have a, a buddy who you go with all the time, then you'll go out more often. You know, when other people were kind of irritating us, we knew that we could, you know, call each other and just go out and golf and relax. And we really felt like, you know, you should have drinks. Yeah, Angela is responsible. She was always responsible for bringing the cocktails. I think that it was a little illegal. So we got to be careful. We're not going to tell you which course to do. Wait, wait. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait. Oh. That second voice is Renata again. In addition to heading the Women's Action Committee, she's built an entire career in queer nightlife and event planning. But as a kid, Renata didn't have access to any sort of queer culture. She grew up a Jehovah's Witness in Huntsville, Alabama. I didn't realize I was yeah, gay until 15 or 16 and really didn't know what that really was until I got to college and got, you know, around other people that were gay. Renata moved to Chicago after college. My parents both met in Chicago. So that's kind of how I got my connection to Chicago itself. Um, so that, that's the reason why, you know, I definitely came to Chicago it was definitely because my parents, they have, they both have um, roots here in Chicago. In the city, Renata finally found the role models she had needed as a young person. Queer parties, social events, and the community center. That's what really inspired her to pursue event planning like this. The women that I've gotten to meet, you know, it really empowers you. Um, you know, you see another queer woman who is, you know, my same skin tone and it was thriving. It, it really does empower you. And I, I, I was so lucky to be able to be around women that were successful and totally had, a, as they say, a very normal life. So it definitely had a very big, big impact on the way that I came out and the way I was so confident about who I was as being a queer black woman. I'm thankful for, you know, every day because a lot of people don't, you know, don't have the access to those, those women. They just don't. So Renata started planning pop-up parties and events for queer women in Chicago. She hoped more people would find community like she did. And that's how Angela and Renata first met Shirley J from the warehouse at one of those parties. They just, you know, they invite you in. What can I tell you? You know, so um, that's what I felt the first time. They, they weren't standoffish at all. They were like, hey, hi, you know, who are you? You know, like that. It was, it was really nice. You know, it was a nice introduction. And it sticks in my mind because I could still see Renata's face and Angie's face. So uh, we started seeing each other more at other parties and other friends' houses and we just got to know each other. Shirley has very fond memories of Renata's pop-up parties. Oh my God, they were wonderful because it gave uh, it was a chance that you can go to an all-girls party. Okay, 
because at that time, a lot of the local lesbian and women's bars were closing down. Shirley and her friends didn't have many places to go out anymore until they found Renata. It hadn't been anything really something to look forward to until they started throwing their parties. And they were always uh, classy, you know. The girls were beautiful, and, uh, it was just, and it was a mix. And that's what really, really, really got you going is diverse, uh, women of all ages, and it, it was just something different. And uh, the novelty about it was that it was never at the same place. One of the last women's bars in Chicago to close was a wine bar called Joy Divine. That was a favorite of Shirley's. It was lesbian-owned and located right in Shirley's neighborhood, Andersonville. Oh, my God. Joy Divine when it opened up 2003, okay? It was more like a date bar and uh, kind of classy. It was like, it was, it was the bar to go to back then. Over the years, Shirley became close with Joy Divine's owner, Lori. When business slowed, Shirley did what she could to help keep the bar open. I was throwing parties there, kind of trying to keep it alive. So on certain holidays, I would have house parties, like Christmas and that. And then my house got too small for my party. So I said, oh, well, let me just, you know, ask Lori, can I throw the party over there? And then I started doing my parties over there, which uh, helped out in the way girls started coming. And, you know, I would pack the bar. But ultimately, there was nothing else Shirley could do. During the pandemic, Lori decided to sell Joy Divine, and her first choice to take over the spot was Renata. They came to me because I do events in in the community. Um, They wanted to keep it, you know, lesbian-owned. That was something that was very important to them. Um, And so that's, that's the reason why they came to me, I guess. Renata had been thinking about opening her own bar for a while now. I just saw how much money I was making in other spaces. Um, in other bars and restaurants that I rented out. And so I wanted to bring the experience to one, you know, my own space. In particular, she's always had a passion for cocktail bars. In a normal given week, I'd probably add um, a different cocktail bar, a bar is probably six days or five days a week. And that's five days, like the, the minimal. But she couldn't do it alone. So Renata presented the idea to her golfing buddy. She thought Angela's legal background would be helpful. The legal piece of it is the liquor license, right? And all the the legal uh, things that come with that. Um, So I don't have that piece, uh, the legal side. I have the financial side. I've been knowing Angela for uh, a little bit over 10 years. And so um, I knew she was capable of of doing that. And then she also had a passion for cocktails. So it was kind of like a no-brainer. This was in the fall of 2020. Angela, who was normally really busy with work, had some extra time to take on a new project. She asked me if I wanted to um, help bring it to fruition. And it was at a really great time for me because it was during the pandemic. Um, And, you know, we we sort of seamlessly went virtual. Um, So I had time to do this. And, you know, you can't turn away this opportunity to have a place where you're always going to be able to drink. And she finally said yes after a few asks. Once they were both on board, the process was a quick one. They took over the space in March 2021 and then opened Nobody's Darling in May. Yeah, because we wanted to go ahead and get open because I'm just like, I don't want to lose any money. So it was kind of like, okay, let's put it together through our process of 
um, purchasing the space, we had some time to put everything, a plan in place before, you know, basically we, we signed on a data line. Renata, with her background in event planning, runs the bar behind the scenes. So I'm more on the operational side. I think Angela, what, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, obviously I do a lot of our um, legal sort of corporate organization. And again, I had the fantasy that now no one can tell me that I can't bartend. So um, it all came together in that way. So Angela was finally able to try her hand at bartending. One night I did find myself behind the bar. It was just me and um, our lead bartender. Um, you know, we had someone call off and we had a whole slew of people come in. Um, I panicked and I started making shots. So that that's how I calmed the crowd. Bartending was a lot harder than she expected. O- originally, as we were sort of thinking through this whole concept, um, in my mind, I would be behind the bar at certain times creating um, cocktails. And I, we quickly realized that um, we really needed to have professional, <laughs> you know, bartenders, mixologists, um, because of, you know, the cocktails that we had identified. So these bartenders know exactly how their wells are set up and what they're putting in. It, it's, it's quite uh, it's quite chaotic for um, for the layperson. Every once in a while, Angela still hops behind the bar to serve a simple drink or hand out shots. I still feel very confident that I could do a gin and tonic and a vodka tonic and my kind of mad scientist uh, drinks. The night that we were there, she really encouraged us to try shots of something called Malort. Apparently, it's a Chicago tradition. Malort is a 70-proof spirit that's only produced in Chicago. It's made with wormwood, a super bitter herb. And as you can imagine, Malort tastes kind of like gasoline. Yeah, that's usually the best. (laughs) But for the most part, Angela leaves the bartending to the professionals. Like that day, Xavier was behind the bar. He's an assistant manager and head bartender there. I definitely want something with Let's go off menu. We can make something fun. All right. I would love that. Okay. The drink menu at Nobody's Darling is made up of cleverly named cocktails. We have the A Walker, the Alice Walker Summer Martini. That was muddled blueberry and basil for every cocktail. I interviewed Xavier at one of their tables outside. And fair warning, there's a bit of cicada chirping in the background. This menu was already established by Angela and Renato based on their favorite things. Um, their favorite drinks. So everything that you see on on the cocktail list is something that Angela and Renata will, like they sat down and thought, talked about and that that's, those are the things that they want. And then it, they kind of trusted our experience like um, to make modifications if necessary. Xavier is a visual artist and singer-songwriter. But like many artists, he's been working in the service industry for many years. Just before the pandemic, Xavier had reached his breaking point. He planned to quit bartending for good. I was working downtown, um, right on the river, and I've worked there for going almost four years. And just didn't, like, I would feel so depleted at the end of the day because um, I'm a people pleaser and an overachiever. So I was trying to do the best I could possibly do, making great money, um, but feeling kind of empty and not really knowing myself at the end of the day. So I thought, you know, it's a problem with the service industry. And I was like, well, maybe I need a break. 
But then everything shut down, and Xavier's break from bartending turned into a long stretch without work of any kind. Learn how to sew. I was like doing a whole creative vibe. After about 18 months of this, he decided to find one last bartending job. He'd save some cash and then move back to Maryland, where he grew up. And I got the call for this spot. It's like Black-owned, lesbian-owned bar in Andersonville. And I was like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it just, like, I feel like I manifested it. It just, like, all kind of came together at the same time. Working at Nobody's Darling made him excited about living in Chicago again. Coming here and meeting the owners and meeting the community, it just kind of, uh, you know, kept me really excited about growing the community here. It was supposed to be a few months stint. He would work for the summer and then move to Maryland in September. He had already told all of his friends and family. And after the first week, I was like, never mind, I'm staying. And not only is Xavier inspired to stay in Chicago. I'm actually moving to Andersonville uh, within the next you know, few weeks. I'm trying to move October 1st so I can be closer to here and actually be more involved. So what exactly makes Nobody's Darling so special? It seems like the biggest thing for Xavier is that he's meeting so many other creatives to collaborate with and learn from. He talks about sculptors, fellow musicians, drag performers. I like was put in drag for the first time by someone who I met here. And then I've been supporting them and they want to do, you know, more makeup and like clothes. And it's like, I also sew. So it's like, that's something that now I have a way to meeting a bunch of drag queens too. Yeah, it's just making Chicago feel a lot more um, full. He also mentioned earlier, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to work at a Black-owned lesbian bar in Andersonville. Intersectionality, right? And they're intentional about it being a queer bar. You know, it is femme-focused, and women are the primary, you know, the primary attendees of the bar, but they're not exclusionary. If this is being run by Black women, just being like with their identity, being what it is, invites you know, POC to come to Andersonville because this is not the most diverse neighborhood. Um, so they're bringing a little bit of their history in Chicago with them and mingling with like the established neighborhoods here. Angela and Renata have created an environment that welcomes people of all ages and racial backgrounds. And I think it's like when you can walk into a bar and see that you are not like, you don't stand out like a sore thumb. Like no one comes in and feels like they stand out, Right like a sore thumb in a, in a bad way. It's like you come in and you're like, oh, there's someone my mom's age. There's someone my little si- my little sibling's age. There's, you know, I wouldn't run into them anywhere else. So we all have kind of like collected here. And now it's like I have lesbian friends who are in their 70s. and But also like young trans kids who are, you know, just turned 21. And there's like someone's my grandmother's age that's here right now. One of Xavier's older lesbian friends is, of course, Shirley J. Shirley's definitely like, you know, she can get down and it's it's fun to watch and like the, the command she has over the people that she brings. Shirley's more than just a regular there. I call Shirley the mayor of Nobody's Darling. And Xavier's not the only one that calls her that. Pretty much everyone at the bar does. I laugh. I chuckle a little bit. I'm like, OK, now I'm the mayor. OK, and uh, it just ducks. I don't know. I think it's an affectionate type thing. Yeah. It really is. This is more an affectionate term. It makes me smile. It makes me know that, you know, that I'm loved back. Like, I'm kind of blushing right now, okay? <laughs> and I'm smiling, yes. If you saw me, I'm smiling now. 
And as the mayor of Nobody's Darling, Shirley has her own VIP sign that says reserved. Angela's partner made it. So I can use the sign anytime I want to use it. Of course, I'm not going to like, you know, make people get up. But if I get there and there's a table, I can just set it there and that's my table. So that made me feel very welcome and very loved. We learned from Xavier that Shirley is incredibly generous. Take the first time the two of them met. We end up talking and I was like, I really like your, your shoes. And she's like, what's that shooting where I'm going to buy you some? I'm like, what do you mean? No, what are you talking about? And she's like, yeah, no, I'm a... And I was like, okay, cool. Like, we've been drinking. It's fine. Like, I, I just, I was like, all right, I guess nine and a half, whatever. So the next time she comes in, she brings me for her working stocks. And it's just like, here you go. I'm going to take care of you. It's like, you're my role dog. You're like my son. She's also always buying rounds for people she meets at the bar. You know, you see a group of the college, uh, you know, college girls. And, and it might be a group of six of them. And Shirley's like, hey, Xavier. All of their their round is on on my tab. Just put it on my tab. And then she goes over and talks to them and just like gets to know them. It's like, you know, just being really supportive. This seems to just be part of Shirley's nature. If I meet somebody and we're talking, of course, I'm going to say, hey, you want a drink? And it's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, could you give this girl over here a drink? You know, like that. But I, 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 you know, I'm I'm a giving person. What can I tell you? Shirley goes to Nobody's Darling around two or three times a week. Sometimes she'll meet up with old friends from her clubbing days. But since she lived in the neighborhood, it's easy to just swing by on her own. That's why I called it my cheers bar, because I can, it takes me five minutes to get there. Andersonville, the neighborhood where Shirley lives and where the bar is located, is fairly residential. Here's Xavier again. It's not like we're on a, a strip where there are a bunch of other bars. So the concern, you know, noise levels are a concern and just making sure we're, we're treating our neighbors with respect and not keeping them up too late. And it's a little bit off the beaten path. So you have to be intentional about coming here. You're not just going to stumble upon it, which I think is also uh, helpful to keep, you know, keep the safety and keep the, the vibe the way that it is. But Andersonville is also notoriously white. When they first took over the lease, Angela and Renata were unsure how their neighbors would receive them. Just being two black women opening, you know, a bar in a predominantly um, white neighborhood um, you know, you, you do, you hope that everything's going to be okay, but it's Chicago. Um, and so, you know, you don't really know. That was Angela again. To her surprise, the community welcomed them with open arms. People really went out of their way to support the new bar owners. Gosh, I think, I think the first three weeks we were open, it, we couldn't, you know, turn one way or the other without somebody saying thank you. We wondered, you know, kind of what would happen with the space. Um, we, we really wanted a place to have a drink. Um, there's a Montessori school, you know, across the way. And, you know, so we had the parents, right. Who, you know, wanted to be able to have a cocktail. Yeah. The community has totally embraced us. I remember when we were like trying to get it together, you know, to open up, they would just knock on the door and just say, I know you guys are not open yet, but just want to say hi and welcome you guys to the neighborhood. And that happened Every day we were there doing some work at the bar. And it was just, it was amazing. I felt so warm inside. Like Angela said, we're two black women. And we're in a white, a very predominantly white neighborhood. And they have been just, I mean, beyond supportive. You know, all the the businesses in the area, they always want to do something there. You know, uh, can we have our meeting there? Can we have this? Can we have that? We've had other businesses send us, send us welcoming flowers. 
I definitely want to make sure that the people of the Andersonville community get that credit for, you know, really saying, hey, welcome. And what can we do to support you? At least in Angela and Renata's experience, Chicago nightlife has come a long way since Shirley's memories of separating from her other Black friends in line for the club. We were, you know, always trying to be safe. And we were, like I said, we always traveled in an entourage. So the only time that I felt like threatened or anything like that was when, if I went to a bar and they wouldn't let my friends in. Now, Nobody's Darling is run by the very Black women that might have been turned away or separated at the clubs in the 70s and 80s. While Shirley was sad to see Joy Divine eventually close, she was excited to see this new evolution of her local women's bar. It was bittersweet, I would say. Kind of bittersweet about Lori kind of losing the bar. I was really excited that it wasn't going to close, okay? And it was people that we knew that bought it. And um, it was going to be women-owned, Black-owned. It was like a win for the girls. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Karp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli, with music by Joey Freeman. Follow us along on our road trip and see pictures at our website, cruisingpod.com, or follow us on social media at cruisingpod. That's C-R-U-I-S-I-N-G-P-O-D. Special thanks this week to Angela, Renata, Shirley, and Xavier. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, 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 oh,